0: We stand in the presence of God's Word. Now, as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. She came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Luke keeps reminding us that Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. He told us in chapter 9 that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Yet in Luke's gospel, Jesus doesn't get there until chapter 19. There are ten long chapters in between. But Luke doesn't want you to forget they're on the way. Everything he's telling you he believes to be vitally important. If it were not, why would Jesus have spent his last few days on this earth doing the things he was doing? So this story also begins now as they were on their way. Let's look at this story. Number one, it's first about a woman who welcomes Jesus into her home. It uses the word, Martha welcomed him into her home. Remember, Luke has just told us that Jesus sent out 70 ahead of him. These 70 were to go into the villages between Galilee and Judea to find them a place they could have something to eat, a place they could sleep for the night and move on with their teaching and ministry the next day. They had gone into a Samaritan village. The Samaritan said, no way, move on. So Martha's done a gracious thing. She has opened the door and said, please, please come in. That's a good thing. And yet somehow Luke is telling us in this story that only he tells We don't have this story in the other three Gospels. He believes that Martha's missing something here, missing something. A couple of Sundays ago, one of my grandsons was riding with me to Sunday lunch after church. I know my grandchildren, even the little girls, Jason's little girls, think I'm a Neanderthal when it comes to technology. They do iPhones and iPads, and they know I don't have a cell phone I don't have one. And on the way to lunch, he said, Well, Granddad, after you retire, you might could take a course on how to do an iPhone. (laughs) I said, Maybe I could do that. Yeah, yeah, maybe I could do that. So I was very interested when I read Mary Lou Carney's story, who's about my age, about going to a local college to audit a class in photography. Now, she said, I know people take thousands of pictures now, just pictures, pictures everywhere with their phones and everything, but I've seen great photography, and I wanted to be able to take those kinds of pictures. So she said, I went signed up for this course in college. But gee... The way the professor began, I could tell I was already way behind. I really wanted to slink out the back door. I didn't know nearly as much as this professor was already assuming the students knew. But I hung in there. I didn't need a grade. I just needed to learn. And I hung in there. And I learned three very important things about good photography. Number one, get closer to the subject. Get closer. Zoom lenses are helpful, but they're not the same as getting you and the camera as close to the subject as possible. Number two, don't be one of those that just holds up an iPhone over everybody's head and hopes something good comes out. No, seek a different perspective from everybody else. Walk a little to the left. Walk a little to the right. See if there's not some perspective that's even more insightful. And the third thing I learned in that course, she said, was it's okay to blur the background. She said when you focus a camera, particularly if you don't have very much light, it's hard to get a great depth of field. It doesn't matter much if you blur the background. Be sure the thing you're focused on is sharp. Martha's missing it. She's missing it. She needs to get closer, needs to look from a different perspective, needs to blur the background to have in sharp focus that which is right in front of her. Okay. Number two, Martha's scurrying around. She's working hard. We know that's important. Luke has told us a story about a Pharisee inviting Jesus into his house for dinner. While the men are reclining at the table, eating with one hand, leaning on the other elbow, a woman comes in and starts putting perfume on his feet, wiping her tears from his feet with her hair. The Pharisee rebukes her. Jesus said, wait a second, she's being wonderful to me. I came into your house. You provided me no basin for washing my feet. You didn't put any lanolin on my hair after these hot desert winds. Look what this woman's doing for me. So, being a good host, hostess was important. Jesus understood the importance of hospitality. So did Martha. But she's missing something, not quite interpreting. I heard something once that's really helped me as our children grew and then grandchildren have come along, and that is that children are very astute observers. They don't miss much, but they're very poor interpreters. They don't understand. They see, but they don't understand. There's a new movie that's come out of Japan called I Wish. Two little boys whose mom and dad have gotten a divorce. And the mother got one little boy, and the daddy got the other. In the movie, the two little boys are played by real-life brothers. And these two brothers, like many children, want to fix their family. They want to fix their family. And so their interpretation really goes awry. They decide if there's something that's really difficult to do, something really difficult to reproduce, maybe they could get a miracle here. They could make their wish come true. When I was a little boy growing up in a rural area down in Texas, you could see the dark sky at night and see how brilliant the stars were. There was a little thing we were taught. If you look carefully and see just the first star out there at night, you can make a wish. This star... I see tonight. I wish I may. I wish I might have this wish. I wish tonight. It meant nothing. There was no power there. You were taught when you were a child and your birthday cake was placed in front of you. If you could puff out all the candles with one breath, wishes came true. Not true. Not true. Well, what do these little boys decide? They're fascinated by the, the fast trains in Japan. Gail and I got to ro- ride two of those fast trains in Italy in May. Boy, you can cover a lot of ground at 175 miles an hour. They're really exciting. Uh, we were going from Bologna up to Milano and, gee, 175 miles an hour. They bring us fresh orange juice, coffee, newspaper. In Italian, of course, didn't help us much. But nonetheless, it was exciting to ride a train 175 miles an hour. These little boys see these trains in Japan, and they decide, well, there's got to be a place where the eastbound train and the westbound train come passing each other. Now, if we could get to that spot where these two trains at the same moment and make our wish that our family gets back together, it would work. And so they find that station and they stand back to back, one looking for this train and one looking for that one and they're going to squeeze hands at just the right moment. It doesn't work. Good idea didn't work. And so as they grow, they learn. Some wishes come true. Some wishes don't come true. Martha's about to miss it. She's about to miss it because she's misinterpreting what's really important. Number three, it's about Mary. It's about Mary. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. The commentaries I read this week said there is no recorded instance in the first century where a woman sat at the feet of a rabbi and was taught by him. Not one. This is a really unusual thing, that Jesus welcomed the women to sit like men, equal with men, and hear the gospel. Mary is sitting there, not about to miss what's being said. Gail and I have loved seeing some of the great art museums of the world. And one of the great artists, Raphael, painted his last painting exactly 500 years ago this year. In the year uh, 1512, He was commissioned by Pope Julius to do a painting for the cathedral at Piacenza. And that painting was Raphael's last. It's come to be known as the Madonna above the cherubs. When Gail and I were in Italy in May, we probably saw 60 Madonnas in these great museums. I mean, every artist of the period painted Mary holding the baby. Nobody painted like Raphael Madonna above the cherubs. It stayed there in Piacenza for 250 years. Then that little cathedral was running into hard times. The Germans had more money. They offered to buy it. 250 years ago, the painting was moved to Dresden. Been there all these years, 1945. The Russians overran Dresden, and they took that painting. Took it to Moscow, and it was there 10 years. And then finally, they brought it back in 1956. And it's still in Dresden now, 500 years old this year. Well, Raphael painted Pope Julius in the picture. You know, he was paying, paying the fare. So he has Pope Julius there, though he has the mitre off his head and beside him in the presence of the Holy Mother. Mary's holding this precious little child, roly-poly like Raphael liked to paint. Right down at the bottom of the painting, two little cherubs. One of them has his arms crossed like this, and the other one has his head on his chin like this. But both of them have their eyes looking up like this at the Holy Mother and the baby whom they resemble, little chubby arms, fat little faces. What's going to happen to the baby? What's going to happen to the baby? Mary wanted to know, what happens next? What happens next? Scholars say Jesus talked all the time about the kingdom of God. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, Mary wanted to hear. Number four, this will not be taken from her. Not ever. I got a letter last week from Fort Smith, Arkansas. A woman said, I live in an assisted living center. There are a dozen of us who gather every Sunday morning to watch you on Channel 8 television. She said, some of these are rolled into the room in wheelchairs. They seem to be paying no attention whatsoever. But then they hear a hymn they know. A hymn they know. And suddenly, she wrote to me, they're looking straight and their mouths start to move. A hymn they know comes back, comes back. Something they heard, they loved, they It's never been taken from them. They still have it. The other day, I was visiting one of our women in the hospital. She seemed to be recognizing nothing. Eyes wide open, even her mouth open. I told her who I was. No sign of recognition whatsoever, none. I commented about how hot it was, but how wonderfully cool it was in her room. You're surrounded by these wonderful nurses. They'd been in the room when I first got there. They left. I went on in. No recognition in her eyes, nothing. And then I said, could I pray with you one more time? And she closed her eyes. She was hearing every word. Couldn't respond, couldn't speak, hearing every word. And when I said, let's pray, she closed her eyes. She got it. She got it. She knew what was happening She was ready for me to pray for her again. It will not be taken from Mary. Matt Fitzgerald is a preacher in Chicago. And he has written that he's had the experience, Dr. Tankersley had again this week, all of us clergy have, of meeting with a family when someone has died and saying, what would you like people to know about your husband, your wife, your dad, your mom, your brother, whatever. He said not long ago he was visiting with a family where the father had died. And he said, what do you want people to know about your husband and father? And a son said, every time I ever saw my dad, something very special happened. I remember when I was a little boy and he would pick me up at school. I could see in his eyes that something special was happening. When I was a teenager and I went to sleep late on Saturday morning, he and mom were already up and they'd had breakfast. And they were sitting in the kitchen enjoying another cup of coffee and I'd come down the stairs stretching. And my dad would turn and what I saw in his face was the same I'd seen when he picked me up when I was a boy at school. And when he was in the care of hospice a couple of weeks ago and I would go see him, same look was there. He made me feel that every time he saw me, he felt joy. Every time he saw me, he felt joy. You have a father like that.